Good evening. Take your Bibles, please, if you would, and we'll be turning to Hebrews chapter 5, and we'll read the first 10 verses. It is a real privilege to continue this study with you. Hebrews is an extraordinary book, and I have a lot of respect for it, and uh, really appreciate Dr. Stensis and his insight and passion and, and love for the Lord Jesus uh, in, the, in the study of the very first four chapters so far. We'll be continuing in chapter 5, and let's read together verse 1 through verse 10. For every high priest taken from among men is ordained for men in things pertaining to God, that he might offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins, who can have compassion on the ignorant and on them that are out of the way, for that he himself also is compassed with infirmity. And by reason hereof he ought, as for the people, so also for himself to offer for sins. And no man taketh this honor unto himself, but he that is called of God, as was Aaron. So also Christ glorified not himself to be made an high priest, but he that said unto him, Thou art my son, today have I begotten thee. As he saith also in another place, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications, with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death, and was heard in that he feared. Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him, called of God and high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Well, last week we were introduced to this idea of Jesus as priest in chapter 4 and verse number uh, 14 and 15 and 16. And we're going to continue that here, obviously, in the, in the early verses of chapter 5. And this concept of Jesus as priest is very unique to the book of Hebrews. In fact, Hebrews is unique in its own way in that it's the most Old Testament of all the New Testament books. It really speaks to that audience with a very deep Jewish background that would have been very familiar with Jewish history and not only Moses and Aaron and Joshua, but also all the sacrificial systems and all the ceremonies and all the feasts and all the rules and all the regulations and all the promises that came with the Old Testament. Now, it's likely, I imagine, for those of us who grew up in a place like America uh, as Ohioans, Hoosier, not Hoosiers, Ohio, what do we call Ohioans? Buckeyes, sorry. I had a missing that, that uh, piece of information in my brain at the moment. Uh, to, to sometimes to relate to everything Hebrews would have to say to us. And so it might be good to put this into context once again to remind us where the author of Hebrews is trying to, to take and teach the people he's writing to. It's very important that we understand this particular concept. Hebrews is being written to a Hebrew audience, and we understand that the Scripture, as we think about it, is really Scripture just means writings, and it's the, it's the, 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 all, the Bible says all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. And so God gave us the Scripture, and we have it in our Bibles in the 66 books of Scripture. And in the Bible that we have, we have 
uh, uh, the ones that come first, the, the, the books of the Bible that we call the Old Testament come first, and they describe for us, really, the history of a family that becomes a nation. We have, very early on in Genesis, we learn about how, the, how we got here, how the world was created by God, and we learn about Adam and Eve, we learn about sin, and we learn about the destruction of the world and the flood of Noah's day. But by the time we get just a few chapters in, chapter 12 of Genesis, we're introduced to a man named Abraham. And to Abraham was given promises. There was a very special relationship of God calling Abraham out of his homeland and saying, in your, in your family, I'm going to do something special. You're going to follow me. And indeed, Abraham believed God. And he said, I'm going to do something amazing in your family. You're actually going to have a family like the stars of the, of the sky and the sand of the sea. It's going to become a nation. And in you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And as we read about Abraham's life and Sarah's life and the land that God was going to give them and did give them, we learn about uh, him having a child named Isaac. And there's so much to learn about Isaac and what God did in the life of Abraham and Sarah and Isaac. And then he had a son. One of them was Jacob. And Jacob's name is turned to Israel. And he had 12 boys that were made up the 12 tribes of Israel. And we know that they were uh, found a home for, uh, for hundreds of years in Egypt. And uh, it was coming out of Egypt that God brought them Moses. And as they left Egypt, as they entered Egypt, they were, I don't know, 100 people, 200 people. As they leave Egypt, they're, 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 they're a million people or two million people. They have become truly a nation. And as they enter into the wilderness, they're leaving Egypt and on their way to this land that God had promised way back to Abraham, they were given Moses to, uh, to lead them and they were given the law. They were given the tabernacle. They were given the priest. They were given a sacrificial system. Uh, they were given all of this information, and this made up how the nation of Israel operated throughout all of these years. One thing the Old Testament could never provide and didn't provide, though, as we read through all the, the 39 books of the Old Testament, is the Savior. We read about Samson, and we read about uh, David, and we read about Solomon, and we read about Gideon, and we read about Joshua, we read about all of these men, and we see them develop as a nation, and some of them were good, and some of them were bad, but all of them, none of them could lead them to any sort of eternal salvation or eternal rest. And so it's not until we get to the New Testament that we're introduced, for example, in the Gospel of Matthew or the Gospel of John, where here we have the Word becoming flesh and dwelling among us. And that's how Hebrews starts, doesn't it? It says God spoke in time past through all of these different ways, through prophets and in all sorts of incredible ways. He, he spoke to them, and we can read Isaiah, we can read Jeremiah, and we can read uh, about all of this in our Old Testament. We said in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. It's very, very profound what Hebrews is saying. And it's been said, and I agree with it, that through every verse of Scripture, through every sentence that you read in the Bible from Genesis one, all the way to the end of Revelation, there's a red thread that leads to Christ. And in Hebrews, in a very special way, those threads come together. And I'll give an example. I'm going to read from Isaiah chapter 53. One of the prophets in the Old Testament, in the midst of all of the failures, really, of the Israelite nation, although they were used of God, they never quite, uh, they never arrived. <clears throat> and Isaiah is prophesying, and when he prophesies, He's looking ahead to what Jesus will come, what the Messiah will come and accomplish. 
And this is what it says in Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 2. For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form, no comeliness. And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed." As we look ahead at, well, we look in the midst of the Old Testament at all the, all the, the stories and all the failings and all of the dynamics that took place, he said, we need someone to come, and it's through his stripes, through his death, through his uh, going through all of that on our behalf that we are healed. He takes our punishment upon himself. And then we read in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse number 10, Hebrews says, by the which will we, will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. We see how Hebrews is pulling together all of what needed to take place in the Old Testament, what it pointed to, what it, what, it, what it showed us the need for. We need a Savior beyond all of this, and the fulfillment of all of that, the accomplishment of all of that, the completion of all of that is Jesus Christ. And so Hebrews is very, very much about Jesus it tells us that Jesus, as Dr. Stensis had talked about, Jesus is different than Moses. Moses was a, a servant of God. Moses was just a man. And Jesus is greater than even the great Moses that they had looked to. Jesus is greater than and, and, and different than Joshua. Joshua never, never offered them, never was able to provide for them rest, right? I don't know if you have this same experience, but I've never yet lived in a house where I could look around in my chair and just say, I think everything is done. The roof works, the gutters work, the drain tiles are draining properly, the sinks all work, the bathrooms are updated. Woo! I've never had that experience. If any of you have, I'd like to talk with you and you could give me some advice. Joshua was not able to provide for them rest. There were mistakes made. There were always battles to be fought. And the prophets were always warning the people that they were going to be uh, facing punishment. Indeed, they did. They were taken captive and all of these things took place. But Jesus could provide rest. And so now we arrive in chapter 4 that we started last week, and now chapter 5, and nowhere else in the New Testament do we have Jesus characterized, described as a high priest like we do here. This is unique to this part of Hebrews, and it's very profound. We'll begin by describing the priesthood, and we don't have time to, re to, to read the book of Leviticus, but if you did, it would be very, um, uh, I think it'd be very sobering to read exactly what all went into what it meant to be a priest. And we have uh, here in Hebrews a brief description 
of some of the qualifications or qualities that were necessary to be a priest, in particular a high priest. And we see, first of all, that the high priest was taken from among men. It says that in verse number one. For every high priest taken from among men is ordained for men in things pertaining to God. It was necessary for this people, as they were seeking to interact with God, and God was going to lead them and help them on their journey out of Egypt and into the promised land. It was necessary for them to have this relationship with God. But we know, just like we are today, they were a sinful people. And as you can imagine, if you're standing in the sun on a sunny day, it's a, it takes something to imagine this time of year, but you've been there, you know how intense the sun is. Imagine trying to get, on a, get closer to the sun. It wouldn't take you very long in your way to the sun before you would cease to exist. The quality of the sun is just very different than our own quality. We would be burnt to a crisp, and so God is holy. And to have any, any sort of relationship with God, any sort of coming into the presence of God would be disastrous for, for sinful people. And so there needed to be a, a priest in this sense to represent men to God and to help represent God to the people. Prophets primarily did the other, did the representing God to the people by preaching, but the priests needed to come and sacrifice sin, uh, uh, sacrifice sacrifices uh, on behalf of the people. So we needed, we needed to find someone who could help represent that. And the Bible says that God gave to the nation of Israel a Levitical priesthood. There was a particular tribe, right? The tribe was Levi, and the high priest, the first high priest was Aaron. And so Aaron's mentioned here as well. So Aaron is the first high priest, and it's going to be his sons that God is going to choose in a very special line, and they're going to live a a holy life. They're going to be separated out from the people in some ways. We talked about that a little bit last week. So God gave the Hebrew people a Levitical priesthood. Aaron and his sons would be the high priest, and they would represent the people before God. Now, isn't it interesting that the priest was not an angel? The priest wasn't Michael or Gabriel who would come down and maybe talk to the people and then go talk to God. Um, the priest was taken from among men. That means the priest was human. Why was it so important that a priest was human? Well, it, it teaches us this. It says that the priest was taken among men because it was important for the priest to be able to relate to the people he was going to represent. A priest needed to have empathy. A priest needed to be able to relate to the people he was representing. I can just imagine a priest who is tasked with offering sacrifices to make atonement for the sins of the people. How would you like to have the job of representing to God all the sins of our church, for example, all right? Who would we want to uh, set up for that position? Probably, if, uh, if, I, if it were one of us who was sinless, we would get very sick and tired pretty quickly of all the sins. What in the world are you guys doing? Are you so dumb? Are you so ignorant? Are you so foolish? Look at all the sins. I've been doing this for five years, and the sacrifices are still coming in. The sins are still needing to be dealt with. And uh, look at all the people and all the sins and all the problems. And it would be easy for a priest who didn't understand his own sinfulness to be very severe with the people, 
to not be able to empathize with the humanity, as it were, with the sinfulness of the people around him. And indeed, the priest had to offer, offer sacrifices for his own sin. And then he would offer the sacrifices for the sin of the, of, of the people. And so the priest was taken from among men. Uh, he would offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. And so priests did many things in the Old Testament. They did some um, recognizing health things, and, and there were different tasks for the priest. But the primary task of the priest was to offer sacrifices, was to make sure that the sacrificial system was operating the way God had uh, spelled out for it to operate. Some of the sacrifices were gifts. Uh, many of them were animal sacrifices. And I look forward to the Jewish conference. It's going to be really interesting to hear much more about how, the, how this all worked and, and to hear it from someone who's really spent an enormous amount of time studying. It's going to be great to be able to dive into that just a bit. And it might raise some questions as we go through the study that we can ask at the Jewish conference. Uh, but the priest, the high priest, was in charge of overseeing this whole particular system. And I can only imagine how much blood the priests of that day had to interact with. The blood of bullocks, the blood of lambs, the blood of all sorts of, of animals as they were brought in. It must have been a really interesting job. Having the altar filled over and over daily with sacrifices and the blood being spilt and all of that. What did that picture? Well, animal sacrifices teach us, I think, at least three things that I have written here. They teach us, first of all, that forgiveness is costly. <clears throat> it costs something to forgive. We have to recognize the reality and severity of sin and its destruction that it costs. So forgiveness is costly. Secondly, the punishment due to sin is death. Romans says the wages of sin is death. And then thirdly, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission for sin. So forgiveness is costly. The punishment due to sin is death. And without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. So we have the priests, and we see that their job was to offer sacrifices on behalf of the people. They were taken from the people so that they could relate. And in verse number two, it's very clear, isn't it? This priest was taken among men so that they could have compassion on the ignorant and on them that are out of the way, for that he himself also is compassed with infirmity. And by reason hereof he ought, as for the people, so also for himself to offer for sins. And so this priest, as he is offering the sacrifices, animal sacrifices, and understanding the seriousness of sin, it's very severe and there needs to be atonement made. And this was a, a vital part of the daily life and certainly the yearly life of the nation of Israel. It was the critical core of all of their systems uh, as they went through year after year for hundreds of years. But he also understood that despite the, the severity of all of this, he had compassion on the people. He could empathize with their sin. 
He understood what it was like to represent the people. Uh, my understanding is the high priest uh, from Exodus, he would have the 12 stones representing the 12 different tribes on his clothes. He would have it on his, on his chest. They were engraved on his breastplate and also on the shoulders. And so it was as if he was sort of carrying as he represented and went about his tasks, representing the 12 tribes, all the people, as he was going about his tasks. He was going to have compassion. He was not at all like the woman and her husband who were on vacation. And they were headed down the road, and uh, all of a sudden they had to go to the dentist. And she walks into the dentist with her husband, and she says, I'm in a huge hurry. I've got to have a tooth pulled. I don't want Novocaine. I don't want any sedation. As fast as you can, just yank out the tooth, and we'll be on our way. The dentist was quite impressed. He said, wow. You certainly are a courageous woman. Which tooth is it? She turned to her husband and said, Open your mouth, dear. <laughs> the priest needed to be able to see someone who was discouraged and say, I know what that feels like. I know what it's like to be discouraged. Needed to be able to see someone who has fallen, who's bringing a sacrifice and has a repentant heart and say, hey, I've been there. I know what it's like to have sinned and fallen and, and I have to make sacrifices for my own sins. And I'd be happy to help you make a sacrifice here to represent that. He had to know what it was like for someone to be extra grateful and wanting to show praise to the Lord for uh, what they were understanding about the Lord or what was being revealed to them about the Lord or things they had seen the Lord do in their life and the priest be able to relate and rejoice with them and offer gifts and offer sacrifices in that sense. The priest had to be able to relate to the people. And then we, we see he would make an offering not only for the people but for himself in verse number three. On the Day of Atonement, he first made sacrifices for his own sin and then for the sins of the people. And as was mentioned, it is my understanding, the priest would go into the Holy of Holies, the very presence of God, the place where no, no sinful person could be except the high priest could. God had provided that he could, and he would put the blood on the mercy seat, but uh, the, he would have the, the bells on his uh, he would make noise as he walked around and moved and there was a rope to pull him back if he died and was killed because something didn't go quite right and, um, and that was how serious sin was yet we see the compassion of the people it's been said the best of men are men at best and we see that's true even of the high priest that was true even of Aaron that was true of Aaron's sons that was true of any human high priest that was a part of the Levitical system over the years no matter who the high priest was, his pedigree, his character, his personality, his charisma, he had to make an offering first for himself and then for the people. It's a good reminder to us. Paul says it this way in Galatians chapter 6. He says, you know, when you're with believers and someone is overtaken in a fault, it's important that other spiritual people can come around them and restore them and help them and encourage them. But he says, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. But Paul, you're talking about the spiritual people, right? Why do they need to be worried? Why do they need to have a spirit of meekness? He said, because these things that trip people up, these things that catch people off guard, the things that cause people to err, they're real, and they can, we're not immune to these things. 
And so be humble about them. If a man be overtaken in a fault, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness. It's really amazing the compassion Jesus would have at the critical point. On the cross, having been crucified, having had the people, the Jewish people, the Jewish leaders, go from Hosanna, right, on Palm Sunday to crucify him, crucify him. And he'll say what? Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. That's incredible, incredible compassion. Well, we also see he was chosen by God. So the priest was not a political position. Verse 4, And no man taketh this honor unto himself, but he that is called of God, as was Aaron. So this isn't something you can get a bunch of ballots uh, handed out and signed. Um, you couldn't just order business cards from Vistaprint and, uh, and start handing them out saying, I'm, I'm, I'm the priest here in the area. You couldn't just put a sign in your yard and open up an office. This was something that God himself established and had to establish. There were a few people in the Old Testament who attempted to do what a priest was only supposed to do. Uh, Korah in Numbers chapter 16, Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 13, and Uzziah in 2 Chronicles 26, 16. And if you look up those references, you'll find out that it did not go well for any of them. To try to step into that role because they felt like it or it was convenient at the time was an absolute impossibility. It had to be someone who God chose, and God chose Aaron, and God chose the, the, the tribe of Levi, and God chose priests out of that line. And, and, and it always got them into trouble when that was uh, changed. As my understanding was in Jesus' day himself, if you remember, there was a high priest at that time, but Herod had a had great deal of influence in appointing who the high priest was going to be. That system didn't work out very well. And anytime we mix all of these political things into that mixture, it, it's, it's, really, it's really terrible. And uh, that was true certainly of that particular time, even when Jesus was ministering. So we have the priesthood described. If you were to be a priest, you had to be taken from men. You had to be human. You represented men to God. And so your role, in particular, was to offer sacrifices and to represent people to God. You offered gifts and sacrifices for sins. You had to have the ability to deal compassionately or empathetically or gently, understanding two things, both the seriousness of sin, that it wasn't to be overlooked, that it wasn't to be ignored, but at the same time, you had compassion for the people because you yourself were a sinner. And then you needed to be appointed by God. You needed a divine calling. This wasn't something to just aspire to. It wasn't something to uh, train for in a, you know, just because this is the career path I picked. But God himself had to uh, provide for that. So now in verse 5, we see the priesthood fulfilled in Jesus. Now Jesus wasn't from the tribe of Levi. We'll talk more about the order of Melchizedek in the verses to come because that will come up again, but we won't take too much time tonight. Um, but Jesus did fulfill the role of a priest in a way no other priest ever could. In fact, the entire priestly system was going to be done away and was done away with when Christ came and offered himself as a sacrifice. Look at verse 5, if you would. It says, So also Christ. 
And now it sort of goes in reverse order, talking about how Jesus fulfills this. But we notice, first of all, that in the incarnation, the incarnation simply meaning God becoming flesh, being clothed with flesh, when, when God sent His only begotten Son to be born of a virgin, when He became a man, that humiliation or that humility required for God to become a man was so essential because God became a man to, to lay down His life for men. He didn't become an angel to die for angels. He became a man to die for, for men. And John says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so God created the world. As God, he spoke the world into existence. But as a man, he was laid in a manger and had to learn his ABCs. He, had, he developed and grew and he, and he understood all what it meant to be human. In chapter 4, in verse 15, it says, We have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. What you have felt emotionally, Jesus has felt. What you have felt in terms of spiritual oppression, Jesus has felt with the sole exception being yet without sin. He endured these things, but he never sinned. He never went through that part of it, but every, every, every bit of it, and he talks in detail about what this actually meant. We'll get to that in just a moment. We see that Jesus was not only a high priest with a feeling of our infirmities as a man, but he was appointed by God. It says in verse 5 and 6, first of all, that he was appointed, that he was the Son of God. In verse 5, he, he quotes from Psalm chapter 2, So also Christ glorified not himself to be made an high priest, but he that said unto him, Thou art my Son, today have I begotten thee. Whenever we see Jesus in the Bible, he's perfectly submissive to the Father. He's obedient to the Father. Even in the Garden of Gethsemane, he says, Not my will be done, but thine be done. And he'll end up going to the cross. And so he's perfectly submitted to the Father. The Father has this authority, and the Father says, Thou art my son. And then in verse 6, he quotes from Psalm 110. Uh, he saith also in another place, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And here he emphasizes that he is called to be a priest. He represents the people to God. He'll play this role. He'll fulfill this role in an incredible way. And he takes Psalm 110 to prophetically to talk about this. Another place in the, in the New Testament where this is uh, unrolled in a conversation is in John chapter 8 where John or Jesus is talking to the Father. He's talking to the disciples about who he was and how he is obeying the will of the Father. And both of these come out. The, the people will be asking him, uh, you're, are you greater than Abraham? Uh, you're, you're talking as if this work that you're doing, that you're greater than Abraham. And, and Jesus says, in response to that, absolutely. Before Abraham was, I am. But Jesus didn't make himself priest. He was entirely obedient to the Father. The plan of God before the foundation of the world, this plan of God at the, at the very beginning when God is interacting with Adam and Eve about the curse of sin and the consequences of sin, but promising provision and, and a Savior, Jesus is fulfilling that. Now we see in verse 7 the compassion of Jesus. Notice what it says here. Who in the days of his flesh, that is his earthly ministry, beginning in Bethlehem all the way to the cross outside of Jerusalem, when he offered up prayers and supplication with strong crying and tears 
Well, we know in John 11, Jesus wept. It says here he didn't just weep, he had strong crying and tears. Unto him, unto the Father, that was able to save him from death and was heard in that he feared. And so now we're brought, it would seem, to the Garden of Gethsemane where he's praying and as it were, great drops of blood and he's in agony and he's praying all night and this is after the betrayal or right before the betrayal and, and leading into the crucifixion. And God heard him, but he still went to the cross. But what was his prayer? Not my will be done, but thine be done. And so he, he was obedient. Though he were a son, in verse 8, yet learned he obedience by the things he suffered. Not that he was ever disobedient, but he continued to be obedient and learned obedience and, and was faithful to be obedient all the way through. And being made perfect became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him called of God and high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So in the incarnation, Jesus becoming man, Jesus suffered, yet he was perfectly obedient to the Father. He endured temptation. Satan took him into the wilderness and tempted him. And he endured sadness and surprise and grief. Jesus knew what it was like to be angry. He knew what it was like to experience frustration. He knew what it meant to be betrayed by someone close to him. He wept, he prayed, and he became a man to represent men to God, ultimately to lay down his life as a final, complete sacrifice for our sin, to making atonement for our sin, that all of us can be perfect in him, all of us can be righteous in him, all of us can run boldly into the very presence of God, not fearing being destroyed, not fearing uh, judgment, not fearing uh, any of these things because of what Christ did for us. I don't heard this story. I heard a, a man describe this story. I don't know if it's true, but I thought it was helpful. It affected me. The scene is a terrible car accident, and things are just mangled, and the car vehicle is on fire, and there's a woman driver who's trapped inside. And the, the, the police officer shows up on the scene and he's, you know, there's all sorts of chaos going on and he's shouting to her through the closed door to all the instructions that she needs to do. She needs to turn off the car and she needs to try to get out and the door's crunched so she needs to try to unlock it and try to move around and she's just shouting all of the instructions and the, the lady inside the car is just terrified. She's never been in this experience. It all happened just so fast and, and, and just can't even hear what the policeman is trying to say. And finally, the policeman gets around the car and opens up the passenger door and gets inside of the car and sits down and says, look at me, what I want you to do, it's going to be okay, what I want you to do, and then begins to give her the instructions. It's not as if God or the Bible is shouting at us to do this and do that and don't do the other thing and just shouting instructions at us and when we're in the middle of our lives, but it's Jesus entered into our sufferings in the most profound way that I can't say I can relate to you. I've only lived my life for however many years, but God can say I can relate to you. Jesus can relate to whatever your story is. And all points, tempted like we are, 
He knows what it means to be felt by the, our infirmities. And he's not simply shouting instructions to us through a closed window, but he's entered into our lives, <clears throat> our humanity, our suffering. And so in verse 14 of chapter 4, seeing then we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. You say that you, you, you know who Jesus is, and, 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 and the writer is trying, to, is trying to help these Christians, these Jewish Christians, in a time and place where they were facing very intense pressure, both from within and without. Uh, from without, they were facing persecution, no doubt, from the Roman system. They were facing persecution from Nero, who uh, quite likely was the, the head of the Roman government at that time, and it was just a very scary, strange time, and persecution from all of the paganism around them. And also from within, there were Judaizers and there were all sorts of troublemakers who had their own agendas and were trying to get their own influence. And I can just imagine being a, a simple dad or mom at this time, having come from a Jewish background. I, I believe in Jesus and I received Christ, but all of this noise coming around, and he's simply saying you have an anchor in Christ. If you're in Christ, you're, you're, you're safe. You can be rooted in him, built up in him, and don't get caught up in all the other stuff that's trying to pull you astray. And he reminds them, you have not a high priest which can't be touched with the feeling of your infirmities, but was in all points uh, tempted like ye are, yet without sin. And so he says, hold fast to Christ. You've professed faith in Christ. Just trust in him. And by the way, let us come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find help in time of need. Because it's not mentioned in Hebrews, and you think it would be, in A.D. 70, so uh, A.D. 70, the temple, <clears throat> the beautiful temple, not as beautiful as Solomon's temple, but still the place where if you were a Jew, that was the place you went. That was the, that was the greatest place on earth, would, would, be, would be entirely destroyed. There'd be no more altar, no more pillars, no more, all of those memories would be gone. The city of Jerusalem would be destroyed. Many of those people would be killed. <clears throat> but they had Jesus. All of that stuff was okay. When all of those structures fell apart, nothing changed. They had Jesus. When the priesthood ended and they didn't know who was a Levite or not, or there was no more, uh, no more feasts or celebrations or sacrifices in the temple, that was okay. Psalms asked, if the foundations be destroyed, what shall the righteous do? We have Jesus, and we can trust in him. Jesus, as our great high priest, doesn't offer a lamb or a bull, but he offered himself. He took our iniquity upon himself and made atonement for the sins of the world. As priest, he understands our weaknesses. He will not reject us when we run to him. He understands what we're going through and the feelings of our infirmities. He doesn't overlook sin. He understands the seriousness of it and the consequences of it because he paid for that himself on the cross, but yet he loves us and receives us. And so Christ, in a unique way, fulfills the role of the high priest, and we'll be able to continue to learn a little bit more about it in the chapters ahead. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we are thankful for your word and for a letter like Hebrews, which in a profound way 
pulls together so many of these threads from our, from our Bibles. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to understand what it means to be anchored in Christ, to be in Christ, and know both how serious sin is and the consequences of it, the destructive quality of it, but yet also the incredible compassion and forgiveness that we have in Christ so that we can come boldly to you. I pray that you would give us a clear understanding of your compassion <clears throat> so that we can have compassion on others, that we can pray for them, encourage them, and exhort them as we seek to follow you as a church family. We just pray that you would take and continue to take the lessons from Hebrews and help us to continue in the things that we know and the things that we've learned. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.